Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Obviously, the effect of the coronavirus is, uh, is among us. So uh, I'm delighted for today's speaker, Robert Sims, and he will be introduced to us um, by William Rigby. William is, as you know, the Vice Chair for Faculty Affairs in the Department of Medicine, and he's a Professor of Medicine and of Microbiology and Immunology. And with no further ado, please tell us about today's speaker. Thank you, Rich. Um, for those of you out there, uh, I welcome you as well to this uh, presentation on recent advances in scleroderma by Dr. Robert Sims. Dr. Robert Sims is uh, particularly suited for this task, having been a leader and the glue of the movement uh, that has advanced the care of scleroderma during our lifetime. Uh, for those of you in our professional lifetime, as rheumatologists and, and internists, you recognize that by some metrics, scleroderma is one of the most lethal diseases you'll ever take care of. And I would also say by almost all metrics, scleroderma is probably one of those most mysterious diseases you'll ever see or take care of. So where does Dr. Sims come from to bring us today? As a recent, first off, I want to mention that he's a recent uh, Joined, recently joined our section of rheumatology at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. We're welcome to have him here. This is shortly after retiring, I think in one week, from Boston University Medical Center. So this is a person who lives to work. But let me tell you a little bit more about uh, Dr. Sims. Dr. Sims not only comes our way from Boston University, he comes our way from Milan, Italy. Fortunately, not very recently. <laughs> he then went to school in England and then went to school at Bucknell, where he graduated with a degree, uh, magna cum laude, and went to the University of Rochester, transitioned through his residency, doing his rheumatology fellowship at BU in 1985. From thence, he remained there, uh, ascending in the ranks as a becoming full professor in 2001 and division chief from 2005 till only recently. Dr. Sims, as I said, has not only been a leader in the treatment of uh, scleroderma, he's also been the glue, uh, the clinical glue of a movement in basic science and clinical therapeutics. And uh, we cannot imagine a better new recruit to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. I welcome Dr. Sims. Thank you, William, for that <clears throat> very nice over-the-top introduction. Um, so, um, I'm trying hard to be a uh, Vermonter and uh, have recently moved to uh, northern Vermont. Um, you know, up there in uh, north of St. Johnsbury in the Northeast Kingdom, um, southern Vermont is considered a, uh, um, a suburban enclave of um, greater Manhattan. So the true Vermonters really think that they live in the Northeast Kingdom. Um, and uh, to be a true Vermonter, I found out that you have to be there, actually, for five generations at a minimum. Uh, but I have gone to town meeting, and um, I voted uh, in our town, so I'm very proud of that. And I'm trying to master <coughs> a chainsaw, um, and I have my muck boots in my truck, so uh, I'm ready. Uh, but thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here. It's uh, really uh, a pleasure. Um, at BU for 35 years, I developed an allergy to my car seat. Um, and um, 
So I'm very pleased to uh, not be commuting two hours every day. Um, although my commute from northern Vermont will be uh, a little bit easier. Uh, it's actually about the same uh, time in the car, but less frequently. Um, but anyway, let's, uh, let's without further ado, uh, move on. And I just need to figure out, oh, there we go, okay. So these are my disclosures. I think you've already seen that. Hopefully they'll cancel each other out. Um, and what we're gonna do this morning is uh, give you a brief overview. Thank you. Um, of scleroderma, which William has set the stage for, this vexing autoimmune condition with many unique features in medicine. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit uh, of the, the key complications of the disease that affect mortality primarily, that is ILD, interstitial lung disease, and pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, we're going to then shift over to some of the key therapeutic advances that uh, I'm going to highlight that have occurred over the past several years. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some novel approaches to overall therapy for the disease. And then finally finish up with um, a little uh, teaser on what's, what's coming uh, down the pike uh, in terms of therapy, therapy. So I'd like to start out with uh, this uh, quote from Voltaire, um, uh, uh, the French um, uh, uh, satirist, uh, who quoted uh, that the role of the physician uh, is to entertain the patient while nature takes its course. Now, we all know as physicians that that's actually true for a lot of things that we do. Um, and I'm fond of saying that rheumatology is at least 50% psychiatry and may, maybe more. Uh, but it really is true when it comes to scleroderma until relatively recently. With, there is really not much we could do it was considered a backwater of uh, therapy um, in, in rheumatology. Um, that said, I think that what I'm going to try to convince you of is that that is no longer true, uh, and there are therapies that work in this disease and that we should be using them. But we remain actually quite jealous of uh, folks like Dr. Rigby, who works in rheumatoid arthritis, which has seen such dramatic changes over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and I was just telling him that when I started out as a fellow 35 years ago, people would walk into my examining room and <clears throat> tell me to keep them out of a wheelchair if they had rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, now they walk into my examining room and say, you have to get me to the starting line of the Boston Marathon in Hopkinton. And, and that's actually reasonable. So um, life is somewhat different for us folks who toil away in uh, scleroderma. Uh, but I think, uh, as I said, I'm going to try to convince you that it's, that it's certainly much better than it used to be. So without further ado, this is kind of the classic clinical feature of the disease. Uh, and you can see uh, that uh, this is an, a prime example of sclerodactyly. Now, this patient, if the, the astute observers among you can also see that she's had MC arthroplasties in the left hand, MCP arthroplasties. 
So she has a form of scleroderma that's associated with an RA-like arthropathy in addition, and you can see that across the MCP joints, uh, that uh, the, it's difficult to make out the valleys in between there. There, so there's some synovitis there. But the key feature uh, regarding scleroderma is sclerodactyly, which means, of course, tight skin uh, in the fingers as the result of uh, excessive collagen deposition uh, within the subdermis. So this is a very interesting spectrum of disease, which uh, is outlined here in this slide. Um, and it, 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 uh, uh, it consists of two major subtypes, the systemic form of the disease and the localized form. Localized scleroderma, uh, which is easily confused with limited scleroderma, um, is disease confined to the skin. It's essentially an autoimmune disease of the skin and it comes in many different subtypes. Two of the major ones I've outlined here, morphia and linear scleroderma, which basically is distinguished by uh, the morphology of the lesion. Morphia is a roundish uh, blob of sclerodermatous skin, whereas linear scleroderma um, is, as suggested in the, in the name, is more elongated and can uh, cross joints. Uh, the latter is more common in children and can be associated with growth retardation in affected extremities. Morphia um, can be seen in both children and adults. They're both quite rare and primarily seen by dermatologists. And a shout out to the, our dermatology colleagues who I believe are, are listening in today as well. But the two major types that we deal with clinically as rheumatologists are limited and diffuse. There is a weird subtype known as sine scleroderma, sine, of course, in Latin, without. These are people who uh, have extracutaneous manifestations of the disease, um, but normal skin. So they might, it might include someone who has, for example, Raynaud's phenomenon, a positive ANA, and pulmonary arterial hypertension. We'd call that person sine scleroderma. But the two most, so they account for about 10% of our total population. Limited and diffuse, limited used to be called CREST syndrome, the acronym standing for calcinosis, Raynaud's esophageal disease, sclerodactyly, and those little red spots, the telangiectasia. It's now called limited scleroderma. Uh, so CREST has really been eliminated from the lexicon, primarily because most people don't actually have calcinosis, only about 15% do. Uh, so limited is distinguished from diffuse disease by <clears throat> essentially the extent of skin involvement. If it involves the trunk or proximal extremities, it by definition is diffuse. If it's the acral extremities, um, uh, it's considered limited. And it's interesting that after about a year of the onset of the disease, people fall into one category or the other, and they stay there by and large. People who uh, are limited after a year, don't gradually evolve into diffuse disease. So it's this interesting dichotomous uh, evolution uh, of the illness. And why that is, of course, we have no idea. Now, you can further subdivide uh, these uh, principal systemic forms by autoantibody characterization. I apologize for the busyness of this slide. 
focus on the outside of these two Venn diagrams, diffuse disease tends to be associated uh, with several marker autoantibodies, SCL70 being one of them. It's also called topoisomerase. It tends to be seen in people who also have associ the associated complication of interstitial lung disease. RNA polymerase antibodies tend to be associated with more rapidly progressive skin disease in that subgroup, uh, as well as uh, it seems to be uh, an effective predictive marker for um, a complication, a vascular complication known as renal crisis. U3RNP tends to be associated with myositis and myopathy. Um, on the other side, over to the far right, uh, limited disease uh, associated with antibodies to centromere antibodies with uh, fairly high uh, sensitivity, about 60%, um, uh, and also uh, tends to be a marker for pulmonary hypertension. And then in the middle, uh, the overlapping category, U1RNP, tends to be associated with myositis and arthropathy. And there are several other much less commonly seen autoantibodies that I won't uh, bore you with. So how common is scleroderma? Uh, well, it is the least common of the three major autoimmune diseases that we come across in rheumatology rheumatoid arthritis being the most common. It is about 10 times less frequent than lupus. Um, so it's considered a rare disease. Uh, the incidence is about 20 new adult cases per million. Uh, the peak incidence is in middle age. And there's a female to male predominance that uh, accounts to about four to one in most series. Across racial and ethnic groups around the world, there's no specific predisposing racial or ethnic uh, demographic category, with the possible exception of uh, a somewhat more severe phenotype in the diffuse category in African-American younger women. Now, um, to sort of set the stage for uh, the talk, uh, part of the talk about therapy, um, it's important to understand uh, sort of what happens, what has been happening in, term, in terms of the secular trends in mortality over the past 30 to 40 years. Uh, we are doing somewhat better in overall mortality uh, in the disease itself as the result of advances in sort of global therapy, uh, which is everything. Um, now, that's especially true in this complication called scleroderma renal crisis. So if you look at the proportional deaths of people with scleroderma, those attributable to scleroderma renal crisis have dramatically decreased over the last 30 years or so, primarily as the result of therapy um, in the form of ACE inhibition. So early use of ACE inhibition in the severe hypertensive crises associated with scleroderma renal crisis has made dramatic improvement in the mortality attributed to that complication. As that has occurred, we are seeing an increase in the proportional mortality, however, for pulmonary arterial hypertension and interstitial lung disease. So that's going to be the focus 
uh, of the next few slides. And that's essentially reiterated there. So uh, let's uh, start out that discussion by talking about pulmonary arterial hypertension. This tends to be a late clinical feature. So years after the onset of the disease, begins insidiously with dyspnea on exertion. Um, and it tends to be seen in limited scleroderma, uh, or again, formerly Crest syndrome, with prominent vascular features. And, and that's sort of interesting as well, because uh, it's been shown that uh, these little red spots called telangiectasia, which are essentially little dilated blood vessels, uh, those are actually manifestations of the pan-arterial abnormality that's seen in the pulmonary vascular tree. Uh, and it, it's now clear that if you actually map out uh, the, uh, the total body surface area of these telangiectasia, that that correlates directly with the pulmonary artery pressure. So if you see somebody who walks into your clinic and they've got lots of red spots all over them, they're at high risk for developing pulmonary vascular disease. Anyway, um, late findings include an increased uh, second component of the, um, or an increased pulmonic, uh, an increase in the pulmonic component of the second heart sound, uh, a loud P2, a right ventricular heave. Those are relatively late findings, of course. Fixed split P2 can also uh, be seen. Uh, and a key marker in terms of uh, pulmonary function tests uh, are relatively normal lung volumes, but a disproportionate decrease in diffusion capacity. That's not specific, of course, for pulmonary hypertension. You can see that in people who have interstitial lung disease as well, but they would tend to have abnormal lung volumes. So if you see normal lung volumes, but an excessive decrease in the diffusion capacity, uh, that would that should set off some alarm bells, especially in somebody that's symptomatic. So this is bad. Um, and this is sort of, uh, this is data from two series, uh, uh, from Ginny Steen, uh, set two separate series of patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension compared to a population of folks with scleroderma without pulmonary hypertension. Uh, they differed slightly in the degree of uh, the abnormalities seen on right heart catheterization in their PA pressures. But the bottom line message is here that the two-year survival uh, was around 40% in both populations. Now, this is sort of pre-recent advances in uh, treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension. But just to set the stage, uh, that this is a miserable complication of the disease. Um, it does remain miserable, but less so, I think, and I'll try to convince you of that. Now, what's interesting about the vasculopathy of scleroderma is that it's pretty much the same histologically in its appearance throughout many different vascular beds. And this is, um, uh, this is an example, unfortunately, of an amputated finger in someone who developed ischemic necrosis of the fingertip. Uh, and you can see uh, the size of the lumen here. The normal lumen would have been here. 
and you have this tremendous smooth muscle and endothelial proliferative process with fibrosis as well that eventually causes luminal narrowing and obliteration uh, and tissue uh, ischemia or necrosis. And the same basic histologic pattern occurs throughout the different vascular beds in the body uh, and in the pulmonary vascular tree. This is just an extreme example of pulmonary arterial hypertension by chest X-ray. This isn't a great way to make the diagnosis, of course. The pulmonary artery and the right ventricle markedly dilated uh, in this sort of end stage. This slide reminds me to tell you that there is actually a differential diagnosis, as cardiologists will tell you, uh, for pulmonary hypertension. It's not always pulmonary arterial hypertension, which uh, refers to that vasculopathy, which is quite specific uh, to the pulmonary vascular tree. There is interstitial lung disease, of course, can produce pulmonary hypertension by back pressure if it's bad enough. Myocardial involvement in the form of diastolic dysfunction can produce pulmonary hypertension by echo. Um, and I should highlight that this is an increasing problem uh, which we have uh, not really grasped the full significance of. It's really the tip of the iceberg uh, in diagnosis and treatment of cardiovascular complications of this disease. That is diastolic dysfunction due to fibrosis of the myocardium. And these Venn diagrams do not represent uh, the relative degree of prevalence comparison, so I apologize for that. So um, this, is, this accounts for an increasing proportion of pulmonary hypertension by echo. Uh, this um, sort of a small but significant proportion. Uh, this a large portion. Um, and then these two others, quite rare and should be much smaller than diagrams. So one is pulmonary veno-occlusive disorder. Uh, this is sort of in the realm of uh, uh, the pulmonologist, and I'll show you um, exactly where that uh, lesion lies. And then chronic thromboembolic disease, um, which is uh, probably somewhat more common, actually, in lupus, uh, where there's an associated coagulopathy that leads to increased um, pulmonary emboli, and eventually pulmonary hypertension due to that. So this is a cartoon that sort of outlines where the lesion is. This is pulmonary arterial hypertension producing back pressure in the right ventricle uh, by progressive occlusion of the pulmonary artery. Interstitial lung disease uh, obliterates these alveoli and their vascular beds, and that leads to back pressure. Pulmonary veno-occlusive disease on this side uh, of the uh, cardiovascular flow tract, and then, of course, uh, diastolic dysfunction uh, from left ventricular disease resulting in back pressure through the, uh, through the lungs and into the pulmonary vasculature by that direction. So this is the, uh, uh, in more detail, the histologic pathology. It's an obstructive uh, lung panvasculopathy. Um, and as you might uh, expect, the prognosis of this condition is largely determined by what happens to the right ventricle. 
if the right ventricle is preserved, um, people can live quite a long time. We have people on epiprosnol, continuous intravenous infusion of vasodilator therapy. We have several people now out well out over 10 years on that. And there's some evidence that uh, that most aggressive therapy for pulmonary vascular disease may actually favorably modify the histologic abnormality within the pulmonary vasculature. Um, and we've actually had the experience of taking some people off long-term epiprosinol therapy. But that's if the right ventricle is not unhappy. If the right ventricle is unhappy, that's a very bad sign. I apologize for the busyness of this. Um, I want to just give you a very brief overview uh, as we shift into therapy of what the major therapies do regarding the, the metabolism of both vasodilators and vasoconstrictors within the pulmonary vasculature. So this is a cartoon. These are endothelial cells. The lumen is over here. These are smooth muscle cells. Um, and uh, very briefly, uh, there are three principal pathways that control the homeostasis and the vascular tone uh, of the pulmonary vasculature. There's the endothelin pathway, the nitric oxide pathway, and the prostacyclin pathway. Endothelin receptor antagonists work by blocking uh, the endothelin, endothelin um, uh, activation of the endothelin receptors, which uh, lead to uh, vascular smooth muscle relaxation. <clears throat> the uh, uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors, the PDE inhibitors, uh, work uh, by blocking phosphodiesterase, leading to increased cyclic GMP, which is a very potent vasodilator, and work via that mechanism. And then finally, the prostacyclin derivatives work by uh, uh, essentially being analogs of cyclic AMP and leading to vasodilation through the prostacyclin pathway. So up until recently, uh, the treatment of PAH was dictated by monotherapy of uh, a smorgasbord of these specific agents, which affected different parts of that, those metabolic pathways that I just outlined for you. And it was largely driven by an outcome called the six-minute walk time, uh, which is uh, the hurdle that industry needed to reach uh, as required by the FDA. So what you would do is if you came up with a therapeutic agent, you would construct uh, a series of clinical trials comparing uh, the active drug with placebo in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. I should mention there's a significant population of people who have idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension who do not have an underlying connective tissue disease, and they appear essentially identical. The histology is actually identical to people who have scleroderma-associated PAH. But anyway, back to the methodology uh, to get to FDA approval. Uh, they would do studies comparing uh, the six-minute walk time uh, of active drug versus placebo to get to FDA approval. It was very complicated to do more than one therapy. This is a rare disease. It's very hard to recruit people. You basically have to do uh, global studies if you want to do 
uh, a large enough study to compare therapy. So comparing something with placebo was kind of a no-brainer. You could do it using the six-minute walk outcome. But as you might suspect, getting somebody to walk for six minutes is not a very sensitive measure. And it's terrible in people who have connective tissue disease, right? You've got arthritis, you've got muscle disease. People can't walk, not because they have pulmonary hypertension, but because they've got musculoskeletal problems. So that confounds the assessment in people with uh, PAH and scleroderma. So needless to say, really the major therapeutic advance in this field, in my opinion, came uh, several years ago uh, in which um, there were two major advances. One was the use of combination therapy up front um, versus monotherapy alone. And they used uh, what was really novel and sounds ridiculous, uh, event-driven outcomes, not the six-minute walk time, uh, you know, a challenged physiologic outcome. Um, so death or hospitalization specifically due to PAH was the primary outcome in this pivotal trial uh, that compared an upfront endothelin antagonist embersentan versus um, a PDE inhibitor, tadalafil, versus monotherapy alone. And as you might suspect, the combination was superior to either monotherapy alone, uh, and that's indicated in detail by these Kaplan-Meier uh, um, curves that I show you here, where you can see the combination. And this is uh, survival in the uh, event-free survival in the 52 weeks of uh, this trial, comparing pooled monotherapy with combination, um, and then combination versus the individual monotherapies uh, in the two lower panels. So basically making the point that combination therapy upfront using an event-driven outcome uh, showed that this stuff actually works. Now, when you look at the connective tissue disease PAH subgroup, uh, that's the overall connective tissue disease, most of whom actually have scleroderma. So there are uh, a few people who have uh, lupus, even rheumatoid arthritis with PAH, I think those people were actually scleroderma and were just misclassified as having an RA-like picture, but uh, for whatever reason. Um, most people who have um, PAH, if they have an underlying connective tissue disease, have scleroderma, but the results were basically the same. Uh, that combination therapy was better than pooled monotherapy. Okay. Um, so we're doing somewhat better in terms of uh, PAH. Let's talk about ILD. Uh, so uh, this is also bad, but it may not be bad. Uh, if, it's, if it's bad, your survival, as you might expect, is not so good. So if you have um, a significant decrease, over 50% decrease in your forced vital capacity attributable to ILD, your nine-year survival uh, is not so great. Um, uh, despite that, uh, it, it is quite common and frequently actually asymptomatic. Um, and so there's a tremendous spectrum of interstitial lung disease out there in this population. Um, and it may get progressively worse rapidly. Uh, it may smolder uh, and not change very much over time. Or it may remain asymptomatic. So again, an enormous spectrum. And 
one of our huge challenges is to try to define the population of people who are at greatest risk for rapid progression and target those people with more aggressive therapy. And that's been one of our central foci in work that we've done uh, with Mike Whitfield and his colleagues to try to identify genetic markers, gene expression markers for people at higher risk of disease. Uh, and one of our bright young fellows who's now uh, in Canada and started a scleroderma center there um, did a really nice study sort of outlining uh, the trajectory analysis of uh, these different populations. So you can show that there are many different trajectories, um, up to seven different trajectory patterns for interstitial lung disease in this illness. And the key will be then to match that with um, genetic profiling to identify uh, the profile or the uh, trajectory pattern that results in more rapid progression and target those people for aggressive therapy. Anyway, this is what it looks like by CT. You can see the classic CT finding is this ground glass opacification, usually posterior and the lower lobes with volume loss, traction bronchiectasis, um, uh, and sometimes honeycombing. Uh, so histologically, this is considered by pulmonary pathologists, NSIP, or nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis, uh, as distinguished from UIP, which is the pattern or the histologic pattern associated with um, um, IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But some people have a more fibrotic uh, component to it, and that's known as fibrotic NSIP. It produces a restrictive physiology by PFTs with low FEC and FEV1 uh, and reduced proportionate decrease in diffusion capacity. Um, uh, and if you do PFTs on a large population of people with scleroderma, uh, depending on the series, up to 75% have a restricted pattern. So it's really quite common. Now the Sort of the pivotal trial that was now published about uh, 14, 15 years ago, known as SLS1, Sclerodung Lung Study Part 1, was the first study that really showed that immunosuppressive therapy could halt the progression of the disease or even improve it slightly. Um, and this is the sort of the key data slide from that study comparing oral cyclophosphamide, which we never use anymore, um, why? Because it's too toxic. Uh, we still use IV cyclophosphamide because you don't get the bladder toxicity. Um, so we ex we've extrapolated from this study to IV cytoxin. Um, but the bottom line he here is that for an autoimmune disease, immunosuppressive therapy can work to improve this fibrotic complication. And I won't belabor you with the data. Uh, the red uh, is the cytoxan arm, uh, the yellow is the placebo arm, and these are basically numbers showing improvement, and you can see more improvement in the cyclophosphamide arm versus less um, in the placebo arm, and vice versa for worsening. The second sort of pivotal study uh, uh, was sort of the study that led to the replacement of cyclophosphamide in the treatment of this complication of the disease, and this was known as SLS2, or scleroderma, scleroderma lung study part two that was published now about four years ago. 
this was a randomized trial of mycophenolate moftil versus cyclophosphamide or placebo over 24 months uh, with serial, serial outcome measures listed here, PFTs, um, quality of life, as, as well as secondary outcomes, including the skin score. And the bottom line is this slide here, which shows the primary outcome, namely change in FVC over the course of the study, was essentially identical uh, and showed somewhat uh, or slight improvement in both arms. But when you look at the toxicity AEs and SAEs and you add them up, um, cyclophosphamide given orally was clearly much more toxic than uh, oral mycophenolate. Um, what was interesting was that if you compared the cytoxan arm in SLS1 and SLS2, they're quite different in terms of the degree of improvement that you could see over the course of either trial, probably reflecting differences in the patient population, even though the eligibility criteria for entering the study was essentially identical. But the bottom line here, when you look at both tolerability uh, in the form of premature withdrawal or um, uh, treatment failure, uh, and this is not survival in, uh, um, this is survival in the study, um, uh, mycophenolate uh, was clearly the winner compared to uh, cytoxin. So basically equivalent efficacy, uh, but much lower toxicity. Um, and uh, um, because we saw improvements in the skin score in both groups, um, we now consider mycophenolate uh, essentially a disease-modifying therapeutic advance in this disease, or DMARD, as we're fond to say, in rheumatoid arthritis. So I consider, uh, again, mycophenolate to be a DMARD for scleroderma. So let's, uh, with that, uh, shift uh, to talk about uh, overall disease therapy. Uh, and uh, I've made the editorial decision to highlight a few uh, uh, or two specifically that I consider uh, significant over the last several years. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I moved to northern Vermont recently. Um, and I discovered after I moved there, uh, going out on my bike, um, that a field that was adjacent to my place um, uh, the year before had been a cornfield, um, and uh, there were these uh, strange rows of black plastic uh, uh, extending as far as the eye could see across this formerly corn field. Um, I came back a few weeks later um, and uh, there was a guy working in the field, and you could see that there were plants growing underneath the, uh, the plastic, which had begun to expand. Um, and this guy was working with this high-tech device that turned out to be um, something that he could measure the content of THC uh, in the plants. But uh, the bottom line was uh, 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 cannabis is the new cash crop in my neighborhood. Um, so with that, um, we're going to talk a little bit about cannabinoids. Now, I, I should preface this by saying I was extremely skeptical of this entire approach. Um, 
until I saw some of the data, some of the preclinical data, which is actually quite intriguing, and with a bit more digging, um, I, I think this is an area of considerable interest, not only in scleroderma, but in general in rheumatology, and let me try to convince you of that. So with a little bit of background, uh, you know, people started looking in the 1970s, uh, researchers actually, uh, at the NIH and elsewhere, into the mechanism of action of cannabinoids. Uh, and they discovered this uh, interesting endocannabinoid system, uh, which is basically a metabolic system of uh, ligands and receptors, which have a number of metabolic controls. Uh, and so marijuana uh, is uh, a, a, a phytocannabinoid, uh, and it mimics the action of some of these um, uh, endogenous ligands, such as uh, AEA and 2AG. So these are derivatives of arachidonic acid that interact with cannabinoid receptors, and there are two principal receptors. CB1 and CB2. CB1 is expressed primarily on neural tissue in the CNS uh, and in other neural tissues. Uh, CB2 is seen um, uh, everywhere else, uh, and it's especially ex expressed uh, on immune cells uh, and activated uh, T cells, including Th17 cells. Um, so these two ligands uh, stimulate CB1R and CB2R uh, by different degrees. Um, so they have different affinity for these receptors. Um, and uh, CBD, uh, the, one of the two main ingredients of cannabis, the other being THC, um, uh, which you can buy online and is hawked by everybody and their brother, um, uh, these uh, also, uh, CBD, I'm sorry, uh, also stimulates uh, these receptors and reduces uh, inflammatory cytokines, including uh, interferon gamma, IL-2, et cetera. Um, and it also uh, reduces uh, B cell production of immunoglobulins. So in vitro, uh, CBD and these endogenous cannabinoids um, seem to have favorable anti-inflammatory, even immunomodulatory uh, effects. What about the evidence in autoimmune disease? Well, it's pretty scant. Reasonable clinical trials in this area are few and far between. In rheumatoid arthritis specifically, uh, you can find uh, these uh, receptors on synovial cells, uh, in, uh, and in, uh, you can find um, these ligands, these in, uh, endogenous uh, uh, cannabinoid ligands in synovial tissue, and in, uh, uh, and in vitro, uh, they decrease pro-inflammatory cytokines. Clinically, um, there is, there is conflicting data. Um, Dronabinol, uh, uh, which is uh, basically a synthetic form of THC, um, seemed to show some uh, decrease in disability progression in an MS trial, but uh, only in a subgroup. Uh, in IBD, uh, THC reduced uh, uh, a uh, Crohn's disease activity index and improved quality of life. So. You know, that's pretty scant. That's um, really minimal stuff. 
So back to scleroderma, um, if you uh, knock out CB2 receptors, uh, cannabinoid type 2 receptors in mice, and then you expose them to hyperchlorite, this is a, um, uh, and it induces an inflammatory and pro-fibrotic response in mice, both in lungs and in skin. Um, you can show in these knockout mice that they have a much more exuberant form of this uh, model of scleroderma. So uh, these are the, uh, uh, the normal mice, the control mice after hypochlorite exposure. Uh, this is a mouse, a knockout mouse that lacks the CB2 receptors. Uh, and this is the same thing in the skin over here and the control mouse here after hypochlorite exposure. So with some of that, as well as additional background, uh, we were involved in a multicenter uh, randomized trial of this agent, uh, which is a synthetic CB2 agonist, uh, which is essentially a form of CBD. Um, the idea being that perhaps uh, this could uh, speed the resolution of this innate immune uh, pathology that characterizes the immune response in scleroderma. It's a synthetic small molecule. It's a preferential CB2 agonist, so it doesn't affect the brain, and so it does not have the uh, same effects as THC on the brain, and that produces the euphoria, of course, uh, that we attribute to uh, cannabis exposure. It has limited blood-brain uh, barrier penetration, and it has no immunosuppressive effects. It's essentially like prednisone without the toxicity of prednisone. Um, so uh, when you take uh, cultured human fibroblasts from either normals uh, and in the case of people with scleroderma, and you expose them to increasing quantities or concentrations of lenabasin, uh, you can see a decrease in TGF-beta production by the scleroderma fibroblasts. Um, nothing really changes in the normals. So this is the green here is the scleroderma exposed to this drug. Um, and you can uh, show that in scleroderma fibroblasts in vitro, when you expose them to lenabasin, in a dose-dependent manner, you can see that pro-collagen production, collagen production decreases with increasing concentrations. So with all that, we conducted a clinical trial, a phase two trial of this, which is now in press in arthritis and rheumatism, uh, should be coming out in the next few weeks. It was a 16-week phase two study looking at uh, primarily focusing on safety and tolerability with some efficacy uh, evaluation as well in addition to pharmacokinetics and uh, also uh, the effects on biomarkers in the skin. Um, and by, what, by the way, Mike Whitfield, one of our colleagues, a shout out to him here at Dartmouth, um, did uh, the uh, biomarker and skin uh, analysis that I'll show you a little bit later on. So in order to qualify for this trial, you had to have less than three years disease duration. You had to have the diffuse uh, subtype if you had disease duration greater than three years, you had to have worsening skin score over the previous um, six months, uh, or you had to have elevated inflammatory markers, in this case, IL-6 or C-reactive protein. 
Um, and you were allowed to keep your baseline medication, including immunosuppressive medication. And about 80% of people in this trial were on mycophenolate, um, which was about equally distributed between the placebo and the uh, uh, treatment group. Uh, the primary outcome was a composite measure known as the CRIS score, um, and this is actually the first trial that validates this outcome measure. Secondary outcomes I've listed here. Um, and let's get to the bottom line here. So um, uh, this, this drug, lenabacin, has gone through several different iterations of uh, nomenclature. Here it's listed as JBT-101, uh, but that's lenabacin. And you can see this is the CRIS score, the composite measure over the 16-week course of the trial compared to uh, placebo, pretty flat. Um, and you can see the, uh, a little bit more detail, uh, the time course of the CRIS score improvement uh, by histogram. Uh, these dots represent individual uh, patients. So relatively small numbers, um, but uh, really, 30% uh, improvement in CRIS score in a population that turned out to have a mean disease duration of five years, most of whom were already on background immunosuppressive therapy. Um, this is the, uh, uh, the gene expression data that uh, Mike Whitfield here uh, uh, did, and it shows a pretty impressive decrease in pro-inflammatory extracellular matrix markers. Um, uh, this is the lenabacin. Uh, it was called uh, anabacin early on, too, instead of JBT-101. Uh, but that's the same drug. Um, and uh, uh, you can see that there was evidence of biologic plausibility with a decrease in these inflammatory and uh, matrix collagen production markers, uh, looking at those globally. Um, compared to uh, placebo, where there really wasn't much change. Now, um, I'd like to shift to something uh, really completely different. Uh, this is really what I would consider to be the nuclear option at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So instead of hawking CBD to you uh, for your patients um, with scleroderma, uh, now we're going to talk about blowing away their immune system and replacing it with a new one, namely their own, via stem cell transplantation. So this is a trial that we were involved with beginning about 10 years ago now, uh, which compared myeloablative autologous stem cell transplantation versus conventional immunosuppressive therapy in the form of monthly IV cytoxan for 12 months in people with poor prognosis scleroderma. What do I mean by that? People who had interstitial lung disease, people who had uh, a history of renal crisis but with preserved renal function following it. So this is not for everybody. Emphasize again, this is not for everybody with scleroderma. But the overall message here is this works. So if you get rid of the immune system, it sounds pretty reasonable, right? It's an autoimmune disease. The immune system has gone berserk, or at least a significant portion of it has, resulting in the disease we've been talking about. If you get rid of it, guess what? The disease gets better. So let me try to convince you of that. Now, I apologize for the size of this, but um, th this is basically, the, each line represents an individual patient. This is the cytoxan arm, and this is now over five years of follow-up. 
and each one of these lines is how long somebody lasted. If it's a black dot at the end of the line, they died. Um, but the longer the line, the longer they survive before end organ failure. Okay, so the other lines are not necessarily death, but they're end organ failure. And notice, looking at cytoxan versus stem cell transplantation. Okay. So clearly they did better. I'm fond of saying that early on in this, we, we enrolled 10 people in this uh, trial, five of whom got stem cell transplantation, five of whom got uh, IV cytoxin. You didn't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out if this worked. You could put those 10 people, which we did at an ACR meeting because we were doing a skin score workshop. All 10 people showed up and they were standing in a room and you could stand in the doorway and tell who got what treatment. It was that dramatic. Um, so uh, this is sort of a sophisticated global outcome score and basically tells the same story. Here's the transplantation group. Here's the cyclophosphamide group. Black is bad. Green and yellow is good. And you can see there's more green and yellow and less black in the transplantation arm. Same thing if you parcel out the individual outcomes. But here's the bottom line here. Survival here in red. Uh, Kaplan-Meier plots over the course seven years of follow-up. You can see a dramatic difference uh, in the people who got um, cyclophosphamide versus the stem cell transplantation. But there's a big but here. This is not benign treatment. There's a 5% treatment-associated mortality with autologous stem cell transplantation. Now, that's twice as good as the Europeans have published uh, using similar approaches, but without total body radiation uh, as uh, preparatory therapy prior to uh, transplantation. So this is a big deal, and you can die from the treatment one out of 20 times. One out of 10 times if you do it without total body radiation as preparation. And we don't have 20 years of follow-up, so some of these people are going to develop leukemia or lymphoma. But back to the secondary outcomes, basically the message is the same. Whether you're an event-free survivor or failure, you did better with transplantation uh, compared to uh, um, placebo. Um, uh, so that was true of both FEC and DLCO. Now, onto something uh, a little bit different, but uh, focusing back to interstitial lung disease, this is now the first FDA-approved treatment for scleroderma. It's called Nintendinib, also known as OFEV, O-F-E-V. Uh, and this was FDA-approved for treatment of IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, um, about five years ago now. So this was a randomized trial that we were involved in, um, a worldwide randomized trial of over 500 people, um, which basically showed that even with background cell sept in the majority of these people, uh, that the addition of OFEV in people with interstitial lung disease could preserve lung function over time. Uh, and I, I think the novel point here is that this is a study uh, to try to show 
lack of progression rather than improvement. And I think that's been a huge, and it sounds like a pretty simple and straightforward approach, um, but instead of looking for improvement in lung disease, you look for lack of progression. It takes a lot more time, however, of follow-up. It's much more expensive, but ultimately far more useful to us as clinicians. Anyway, without uh, going into um, enormous detail, the bottom line here is that uh, when you look at the nintendinib group uh, versus the placebo group, uh, at the end of uh, the study, uh, I can't see that number over there, um, one year, right. Uh, at the end of the one year, uh, end of study, there was about a 50 milliliter difference in uh, the primary outcome measure of the uh, FVC in volumetric terms. Uh, and that amounted to about a 40% uh, preservation of um, FVC, forced vital capacity, over the course of the uh, study. So a significant, clinically significant difference um, as, as well as statistically significant difference. So um, uh, I guess we're getting close to being out of time, but let me finish up by saying there's some, um, there's some really interesting things coming down the pike. Um, we're in the midst of SLS3 now, which is uh, profenadone, another FDA-approved treatment for IPF in combination with mycophenolate up front. There's tocilizumab, which is widely used in rheumatoid arthritis. It's an IL-6 inhibitor, which shows some promise. Uh, there's a very interesting rho kinase inhibitor that seems to block successfully chronic graft-versus-host disease, which is arguably uh, one of the clinically uh, better models of scleroderma that are out there. Um, there's DMF for pulmonary hypertension. We're working on a new anti-TGF beta uh, isomer, which, um, uh, which has uh, significant promise. Uh, and then there's stem cell transplantation down at the bottom uh, without TBI, uh, which is still undergoing evaluation. Uh, so let me uh, finish there and conclude uh, that, uh, in summary, combination therapy for PAH has become the new gold standard for upfront therapy in this complication of the disease. Mycophenolate should be considered a DMARD for scleroderma. Myeloablative autologous stem cell transplantation improves event-free and overall survival in this disease, but it's not for everybody. And finally, new approaches for overall disease therapy will likely include both immunosuppressive therapy and antifibrotic therapy in combination, and which one that should be, whether it's nintendinib, whether it's perfenidone, uh, or even lenabasum, we don't know yet. So that's my old family group. Uh, I don't have a picture of my new one yet, but uh, hopefully I'll get that soon. Uh, lots of people to thank over many years. And uh, thank you very much for having me. We'll take just a couple of questions given the hour. I had a quick question on the CBD early phase trial. Um, there were some dots that really moved. Some people, some individuals in that small cohort who really improved in that yeah. score. Was there something special about those who really responded differently than the others? Um, 
Yes. Uh, the CRISP score, it turns out, is driven largely by uh, the skin score. It's called the modified Rodman skin score. And there were, there were some people who had dramatic improvement, especially when we looked at those people individually early on, they went from a skin score that, that was very high in the high 30s to 40s. Uh, the normal skin score, of course, is zero. So it's a, it's a very simple but reproducible semi-quantitative measure. And uh, those people had the most inflammation. So they had the highest CRPs, uh, the highest uh, IL-6 markers, and they improved the most. So again, the idea that this stuff is a bit like prednisone without the toxicity, I didn't mention it, but prednisone is contraindicated in scleroderma because of its association with an increased risk of renal crisis. So if you can treat inflammation in scleroderma without inducing renal crisis, that's a good thing. And I think in that particular subgroup, that's what we saw. Hopefully we'll be able to get more information about that because the numbers were too small to really dissect that out in this phase two trial. Phase three trial, hopefully we'll be able to do more of a careful analysis of the major improvers. Yeah. Boston, I diagnosed with uh, scleroderma, and she was one of a cluster and was a bit of an activist listening to the environmental causes. I was just wondering if you can stand out with that. Um, the short answer is no. Um, it was a 10-year study uh, performed by the Department of Public Health, uh, and um, they were they had some serious methodologic challenges to study that over a long period of time because of egress of people from South Boston as well as the influx of, of uh, people coming into the community to try to get a handle on whether or not this represented uh, a statistically significant cluster of increase. Uh, the community was very concerned about the proximity to the power plant in South Boston, which sits right in the middle of it, and that that was uh, an exposure that uh, was thought to be potentially a cause of incre the increase in autoimmune disease. But basically, um, when it was all said and done, um, there was no clear significant increase. Um, and I think a lot of that was just simply word of mouth, people saying, well, so-and-so is next door has um, scleroderma or lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, but it, w it was never uh, established that uh, there was a significant cluster that could be uh, identified. So I was curious, in the Scott trial or in any of these trials, is, do telangiectasias revert or regress? Is there Great question. There, there actually is, and people have looked in a limited way at uh, skin uh, microvasculature, and uh, it, I don't think it's been published yet, but uh, it did improve in transplanted patients, but not in the um, conventional immunosuppressive arm. Great question. We've always learned, known about the relationship of worsening immunofunction with corticosteroids. Can you say... Why is that? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it, it is a dose relationship. So 
you know, I said it's contraindicated in scleroderma. It's relatively contraindicated, uh, but especially at higher doses. So more than 20 milligrams a day is, I think, is clearly associated. Uh, less, not so. And I do use prednisone in low doses when um, my back is up against the wall for somebody who can't move or has myopathy, et cetera. Uh, but exactly why that is, no one really knows. I don't really know. Um, it, it triggers something in the renal vasculature, but exactly what that is um, remains a bit of a mystery. Oh, I think we're because of one, one, one last oh, question. I was just sure. wondering, is, is it your overall recommendation that pretty much every patient with scleroderma should be on methylate at this point? Uh, I think if you have diffuse disease, the answer to that is yes. Um, I think it's a little bit more complicated answer if you have limited disease that is otherwise stable. This will not affect vascular damage. So if you have Raynaud's, it has absolutely no benefit. If you don't have a fibrotic complication of the disease, loosely defined, that may not be necessary. So for a new diagnosis of limited scleroderma, I don't think we need to necessarily put everybody on mycophenolate. If you have the diffuse subtype, uh, I would be the first to advocate in that situation because it's much more rapidly progressive. It tends to be more inflammatory. Um, and so I think in that subgroup, I would. Uh, but I would be more careful uh, in limited disease. We are delighted for your transition from Boston to here and know that you'll find great uses for bag bomb. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you.